0: You may be seated. Wasn't it awesome to see our little friends with fronds? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. There they go. Thank you, kids. And if you want to find your Bible and turn to John chapter 12, you know, we are coming into the Easter week, and this is the week that the world is watching and asking this question, why do you worship Jesus Christ? Especially in parts of the world where the pressure is intense, where there is a great cost for following Jesus, why do you worship him? And the profound answer to that question is found in the text we're going to look at today in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12 through 26. It is Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. Now, just to give you a little backdrop, the Jewish males were required by law to appear in Jerusalem for three festivals. There was the Passover. It is what we are celebrating in this upcoming week. But as also, they were, appeared in the fall when you had the Feast of Tabernacles or booze. But then in the early summer, you had the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And what would happen is all the Jewish men, oftentimes with their families, would come and gather on this particular Passover, scholars believe that there would be up to 2 million people that would come to Jerusalem, It'd literally be overflowing with people. Jerusalem was no longer just a little fortress town. It had become a very sizable city, and it had its temple that could rival any temple in the world. And this particular Sunday is oftentimes referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry, almost as if it was a coronation. But really, it was anything but a coronation. Because um, coronations are filled with dignitaries and regalia. Coronations are filled with celebrations that continue. Coronations most certainly don't change. Within a few days, the person you're celebrating is going to be executed in a horrific fashion. No, when Jesus made his entrance into Jerusalem, this was a messianic presentation. This was God displaying and presenting to a watching world, to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, to the world. This is my anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And in Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, we find the reasons why we worship. And the first one, beginning in John chapter 12, verse 12, is this We worship Jesus Christ because of the prophecies. He fulfills. Let's take a look. Verse 12. And on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So just to give you the information of what has taken place, Jesus makes his way close to Jerusalem to a town called Bethany on Saturday. On that Sunday, there were a number of Jewish people that came to visit him. They came not only to see Jesus, but to once again take in this miracle that was just going throughout Israel, that this man Lazarus, who had been dead, had been brought to life. And so they were all gathered on that Sunday And it's on that Sunday night when Judas, one of the twelve, saw that Jesus wasn't about to cause an insurrection and overthrow the Roman Empire. He had it. And so he decided that this was the night I would betray Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leadership. And it was at that Sunday night that he went and made his pact with them. But then, On that next day, that following Monday, that is when Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem. It's a significant day. It is the 10th of Nisan, and that is in in A.D. 30, that Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. Now, um, that is very significant because it was on the Monday before the Passover that is when the Jewish people would select their Passover lambs that they would have, they would make their selection, they would keep that lamb with them for the next few days, and then it would be sacrificed, and then Passover would be celebrated. On the day that the people of Israel were selecting their Passover lambs, God presented the Passover lamb, Jesus, and he makes his way into Jerusalem. Now, I want you to know that everything was working exactly according to God's timetable. You see, the Jews, the Jewish leadership especially, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Not only were the masses starting to follow him, they were claiming and calling out that he was perhaps the Messiah. Some were believing that he was. They wanted no problems with Rome because Rome was domineering them, and it was going to take not a whole lot for Rome just to come down on the Jews altogether and say, enough, your ideas of worshiping freely are coming to an end. And the Jewish people wanted to apprehend Jesus, and they wanted to put him to death, but not most certainly at the Passover. Whenever all the crowds had dispersed, everybody gone home, then they wanted to take care of him once for all. And so though, even though that was their plan, God was fulfilling his plan, his sovereign divine plan, and Jesus was being presented. And so we see him, and he's coming to Jerusalem, and they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and they're shouting, Hosanna. So first of all, they're taking these palm tree branches. Even in Jerusalem today, you can find date palms And what they would do is they would cut these palm branches and they were waving them just like we saw the kids doing and they would put them down and Jesus was approaching and he'd walk on them. Now, there's a lot of symbolism that is taking place here. In 142 uh, BC, Simon Maccabeus, this Jewish leader, was able to overthrow the Syrians that were occupying Israel at that time. There was tremendous amounts of celebration And kind of their rallying flag were these palm branches in which they would wave. And when Simon Maccabeus made his way into Jerusalem after conquering the Syrians and chasing them out of Israel, they would lay down these palm branches and he rode across them. This was all symbolic of victory. It was the rallying cry of Israel. It was similar to like the American flag, these palm branches. You know, we we see it, times of war, battle, victory. Our flag flying, athletic events, you see our flag up there. And I want you to know, like, you know, sometimes, I mean, you you bring a tear to your eye as it's just kind of whipping and waving in the wind. All that is gone and represented by that flag. The lives sacrificed, the hopes given, and a, a nation rallying around a flag. Well, that's what it was like for Israel. It was these palm branches. And they had them, and they were waving them, and they're calling out, Hosanna. You know, our, our modern-day parallel of putting, like, palm branches down is found in weddings. Now, uh, I've done my share of weddings, and I, I want you to know that um, all attention is on the bride, but you know who gets second place? It's the flower girl, okay? And I, want you, and I've, I did an outdoor wedding not very long ago, and uh, these, these flower girls have been training for months, okay, on what to do. And they've got a basket of rose petals. And this is usually what happens. I usually got the best view in the house. I'm kind of standing right there, whether it's indoor or outdoor wedding. And as soon as they get, kind of get, like they're starting, they're like, Psh, they're just they're handfuls of these flower petals and the roses are everywhere. And they're going at it like a machine, you know? And usually what happens, they're completely out of rose petals before they even get to the aisle. You know what I'm saying? And, but why do they put these rose petals out? Well, it's all meant to show honor to the bride That's what's going on here. It's parallel at these palm branches coming, being laid down to show honor, in this case, to Jesus. The Gospels of Mark and Luke, you know, all four Gospels record this messianic presentation, Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And they record that people were taking their cloaks and their coats and they were laying it on the path before Jesus. This was the sign that they would do for royalty you have examples of that, like in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. Today, our modern-day parallel, if you really want to show someone like the royal treatment, what do you roll out? The red carpet. And that's its carryover value. That's, that's where they get the idea to show great amounts of honor. We're going to put down these cloaks. And so they do. And as Jesus is making a way, The scholars estimate there was about 100,000 people that could have been lined this two-mile route from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had swollen to up to 2 million people, and all these people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. We just sang Hosanna, but does anybody even know what the word means? Is it just a nice little religious word? I mean, sing it at church? It literally means, Lord, save us. Give salvation now. This song, Hosanna, they would sing the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118. The word Hallel is the Hebrew word praise. And this is what the people of Israel would sing, especially the temple choir. But even as families, they would sing through these psalms and they would sing, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And that's what they're singing. They're singing, Lord, save us. And yet specifically, they're saying, Lord, save us. And notice they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You see, they are identifying Jesus as the king. In the line of David, remember God had given in 2 Samuel, he had made a covenant with David and said, you will have a son. Someone in your line will reign forever, eternally. There will be an eternal king. And so they're calling out to Jesus, "Save us!" Hosanna! And they're calling him the King of Israel. Now I want you to know that everyone was locked into this. in on this. Um, in Jerusalem, they would have maximum force, maximum representation of Roman soldiers, because at the at this time of the year, messianic fervor—the idea that Rome was going to be overthrown and they're going to get these Romans finally off our neck—it ran at a fever pitch at Passover. And so everyone was watching this, the Jews, the Jewish leadership, the Romans, and these people are calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving palm branches and putting them before Jesus, the King of Israel is coming. Now, this is, this is, on one hand, it's absolutely marvelous, on another, it's tragic You know, the very same people that are calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord, save us, calling out Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, just a few days later, they're going to change their tune from Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You want to see the fickleness of the human heart? All you need to do is open up the pages of Scripture. They are just like us. You see, most of the people, we don't know fully all the motives of those are gathered, there were probably some genuine believers actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Many folks were just like, man, that'd be great if this Jesus, he could like fix our lives, get rid of Rome, and make our lives better. They, there were probably a few folks that were trying to process this and understood the Hebrew scriptures that Messiah really is a sin bearer. But most of the folks were focused on Messiah is a conquering warrior, a king. Indeed, he's both. But the first time, he came as a lamb, the lamb. On that Monday when all the other lambs are being selected, God presents his Passover lamb. And, of course, there were some folks that were just kind of thrill-seekers. They were just like, whoa, what's the next greatest thing? Isn't that how people are? Oh, new restaurant? Something new over here? Oh, that's where I'm going. That's it. That's just how I live. It's all about something new, and I want to be, where the actions at? And I'm sure there are a lot of people that were just just there like, oh, okay, Hosanna, is that what we're doing today? Okay, I'll do it. But Jesus makes his entrance. You know, when he was unequivocally identifying himself as the Messiah, even the choice of animals, look at this. Verse 14, Jesus, finding a a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold... Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, all Jewish people would know this. What king rode on a donkey? David did. Actually, David and his son Solomon. After that, they switched from donkeys to horses as the animal for royalty. But for David to ride on a donkey, this was a symbol of of great royalty. To Jesus, to do the same thing. It was kind of like automatic. All that history would be lining up. They would see it. And so he was identifying with the royal line of David. But there was something else. Not only that, but that Jesus was revealing his power over creation. Notice the text says it's a young donkey. It was a donkey that had never been ridden before. You know, in Texas, what we call... When you try to ride an animal that has never been broken or ridden before, we call it a rodeo, right? It's a good way to get yourself hurt, all right? And uh, Jesus is demonstrating his power over creation, that he rides this young donkey that had never been ridden, and they're all crying out, Hosanna, 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 save us. But there's something else that's happening while this is all taking place. Jesus is systematically fulfilling prophecy. 500 years prior to this event, the prophet Zechariah made this announcement through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You can find it in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Look how Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And says this, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. Now, some of the people are trying to put this into play and to understand what's going on in their mind, and it's starting to connect. But notice it says in verse sixteen. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. It wasn't until Jesus was glorified and appeared in his resurrected form. And remember, Jesus, even like those guys on the road to Emmaus, remember what he did? He explained from the scriptures all these things, how this spoke of the fulfillment that he had just done. All of the Scriptures were pointing to Him. But it was also through the working of the Holy Spirit that God brought to mind the prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling and how they all came together. You know, there's another prophecy that, it, that took place. And I want you to know, like, this is absolutely fascinating. If you're here today and you're not really sure if you should believe the Bible as God's Word or authoritative... I want you to know that the prophecy that occurs in Daniel chapter 9 is going to give you cause to really pause. It will show you emphatically, this is not just a mere book. This book is given to us by God. Because in Daniel chapter 9, there is given the precise date in which Jesus is going to make entrance into Jerusalem. And you can find it, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We're not going to have the time to completely walk through it. But what it says is that the Messiah would be cut off after 69 weeks, 69 weeks of years after the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem. So the decree was given to rebuild Jerusalem 483 years um, prior to this event by the, uh, the Persian ruler Artaxerxes. 483 years from that time, so the clock is is ticking. Guess when 483 years is up? The 10th of Nisan in A.D. 30, this exact day. There are scholars like Harold Honer and others who have given such great attention to mark this out. When you see the fulfillment of prophecy at that level, You've got to stand back and say, what kind of God is this? I want you to know the fulfilled prophecies of Scripture. They show us that indeed, that this is divine inspiration, that God's Word is inspired and is inerrant, meaning without error, and it is infallible. It is fully trustworthy. That it is God's authoritative revelation to humanity and that we can trust it, for the Bible is indeed the Word of God. Why do you and I worship Jesus? Because he is the one who fulfills prophecies. The prophecies are fulfilled in him. Let me give you another reason why we worship Jesus. And that is because of the power he displays. Take a look at this, verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. So can't you see it? This crowd is gathered, and they're actually like, this is the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says, verse 18, for this reason also the people went out and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. You know, you and I worship Jesus Christ because of the power that he displays. For instance, the power he has to raise the dead. The previous chapter, John 11, is dedicated to this event where Lazarus had been dead four days. Not four minutes, not four hours, four days. And then Jesus shows up, and he actually brings him back to life. He raises the dead. Can your doctor do that? No. Can anyone? Only God can. And that wasn't the first time that Jesus raised someone from the dead. There were actually three different incidents in which Jesus brought someone back from the dead. It emphatically shows his power, that indeed he's God. You see, his power is displayed by the ability that he has to even raise the dead. But there's another way that his power is displayed, and you'll find it even in verse 19. Look at this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The power of Jesus is demonstrated in his ability to draw the people of the world to himself. There is so much going on in this statement. You see, the Pharisees, these were the legalists. Uh, Many of them were leaders. They were seen as authorities. They had all these rules. And they really didn't like Jesus because Jesus confronted them in their legalism. He said, you've got a religion that's minus me. You don't have a relationship with the real God. It's all about routines and rituals. You just kind of show up and do your thing. You don't, you don't know me. You don't see me. You don't recognize me. You don't worship me. You've missed it. And they absolutely didn't like Jesus because of it. They wanted to put an end to him. And, it, you know, so high was the intense displeasure with Jesus. Look at Luke, I mean, excuse me, John 11, verse 57, the final verse in John 11. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, speaking of Jesus, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So they had, the word was out, and they said, if you see Jesus, you tell us. They got their wanted posters, wanted, Jesus. If you see him, you tell us, because we're apprehending this criminal. We're getting rid of him once for all. What's taking place? Oh, You got about 100,000 people waving palm branches and pointing out and calling Jesus the king of Israel. And was anybody apprehending Jesus? No, it infuriated them. And these Pharisees start turning on one another. Look, you're doing no good whatsoever. I mean, they could probably see Jesus right there. They're not even gonna try to touch him. They don't know what the crowd would do to them. And all of this, this statement here, the world has gone after him, them, after him. It's truly hyperbole, exaggeration for an intent to show, indeed, Jews, people from everywhere, even Gentiles, they're coming after Jesus. But at the same time, it's also prophecy, because, indeed, that's exactly what's happening. You see, that's why we worship Jesus, not only for the prophecies that he fulfills, but for the power that he displays But there is one other reason why we worship Jesus, and that is because of the promises that he makes. If your heart needs revival, you want to be once again renewed in the joy of your salvation, look at the promises that Jesus gives. It's one more reason why we worship him. Immediately after they mention the whole world is coming after him, look what takes place. Look at verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks, these are non-Jewish people, among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The whole world is going after him. And here are these Greeks, these Gentiles, they, they had come to a point where they realized, you know all that Greek mythology bit that the Romans just basically adopted? That's just all a bunch of made-up foolishness. Those gods, they're just like us. Immoral, impetuous, wicked, lying, conniving. And we're worshiping them? I don't think that's God. And so, you know, this is what happens when God is drawing people to himself. He brings them to the truth these men are truth seekers they knew that it was the god of revelation the god of scripture the god of israel who is truly the god of the nations they likely started going to synagogues they were learning hebrew scriptures they were engaged and now they see that this one this jesus he indeed is everything that they're saying he is the promised king he is the messiah and so they find uh, Philip. You see that there? And they, they come after him. Philip, verse 22, uh, Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And you might wonder, well, why did they go find Philip? Is it because he had a Greek name? Probably not. Actually, a lot of the Jews uh, had a Greek name as well. No, it's likely they found Philip because Philip was from Galilee, And in Galilee, it's right next to a lot of Gentile territory. In fact, there were a lot of Gentiles in the Galilee area. You spoke not only Aramaic, but you spoke Greek. And right next to Galilee, you will probably remember from geography, is the Decapolis. These ten cities, thoroughly pagan, filled with all these Gentiles. And so they figured out that Philip, he speaks our language. And they say, we've got a message. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see him. And so they come, and they come to Jesus, and look at this. They make this request to Jesus, and I want you to know what's taking place. Jesus is being shown to be the Savior of the world. The Old Testament and the New Testament all have these verses that are pointing the fact that God is a saving God, and he is providing a savior for the world you see it especially in the gospel of john when you read the gospel of john look how often it's referred to as jesus as the savior like john chapter 1 verse 29 behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world maybe you've heard this verse where is it again um, For God so loved the, what is it? The world. Where's that found? John 3, whoa. Jesus, John 8. I am the light of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And how powerful it is that right before his death, the Gentiles are coming. You know, right after he was born, do you know who came to visit him? The Magi from the East, right? The wise guys, thoroughly Gentile, but they came to him at his birth, right before his death. Guess who's coming? The Gentiles, the people of the world. It's so powerful. You see, Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, and now we see the world coming to the Savior of humanity. And it's at this time, verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How powerful is this statement? It's this great pinnacle. See, before that, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes this statement, My hour has not yet come. Not now, not my hour, not now. But now. When the Gentiles are coming, the Jewish people are in full rejection mode. Hosanna is being called out. The king of Israel is being identified. Now, when the Gentiles are saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus, Jesus said, now my hour has come. The hour has come for me, for the son of man to be glorified. The son of man, this was Jesus' favorite title about himself. He referred himself as the son of man. It spoke of his humanity that he's truly human, but it also speaks of his humility. But this term, son of man, is fully messianic. It speaks of immense power, like in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You see the son of man in his glory. He's all of this. And he refers to himself and he says, now it is time for the son of man to be glorified. Where Jesus is and God's divine attributes are going to be put on full display. Justice, mercy, love, grace, propitiation, divinity. For this one is going to be sacrificed, and he's going to be ri- rise again on the third day. Now, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then Jesus starts making these promises. I'm just holding on to these. This is what gives our faith great power. It is why we worship. Look at the first promise he gives in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, that's like, hint, pay full attention to what I'm about to say. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The first promise Jesus gives is this, that Jesus' death will bring life to many. And he uses an agricultural metaphor. Like, everyone would know this. I mean, most of us are not farmers. We got, we have some farmers in our church, and they were definitely present in first service. I'm looking around here. Maybe I've got a couple. But you understand this. This is how it works. You have, let's say, you have a grain of wheat. And what does the farmer do? Why well, he puts it in the dirt, and he covers it, and he buries it. And that, that one seed, it germinates, and from it comes a plant. And in that plant, there's a whole bunch of seeds. And that's what Jesus is speaking. I am the seed, and I'm going to be put to death, and I'm going to be put in the ground, but I'm going to rise again three days later. And like Jesus says, he says, if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, it's not like a 30-fold or 40-fold, or even 100-fold. The immensity of Jesus being the sacrifice of sin for his people, it is beyond calculation. Billions and billions of people have found life in Christ, and that was all accomplished by his death. What a promise to hold on to. Jesus' death will bring life to many. And then he makes another promise. Look in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. The second promise is this, the way to life is to love Christ more than anything. If you really want life, you need to have a love for Christ. You need him before all things. Now, this is a very interesting In Greek, this like really stands out, this verse 25. Because he uses two different words for life. The first time, and the second time he uses life, you see there, he is using the Greek word suke, which speaks of like a physical life. Okay? But the third time, and it's tied to the word eternal, he uses zoe, eternal life. This is the spiritual life, this is abundant life, this is life with God, life with God from God. That's what he's speaking of here. And what he's using is using a Semitic expression. And it has the idea to hate one's life or to hate something is to have preference of one thing over another. Okay? so if you're wrestling, okay, hating my life, what does that look like? This was a Jewish way of saying you give ultimate preference to one thing. And what is that ultimate preference? Well, Jesus says this. If you are giving ultimate preference to this suke, this life about your possessions, about what you're eating, about what you're clothing yourself, all your material gains. If your life is all about food and clothing and pleasure, and mind you, most people, that's all there is for them. It's all about this. How much money do I have in this account? What can I do? What can I drive? What can I wear? How much am I going to eat? You know, and that's all they're thinking about. It's all about my job, and I give my whole life and my attention, all my affections. Are, it's all about this life. My whole life is just centered on the here and now and what I can gain for me, perhaps my family, but pretty much for me, right? I want you to know if that is you, you have lost your life. You are dead in your sins. Why can I say that? because you don't see the magnificence of the Savior. But on the other hand, if God has awakened your heart and your mind, where you see not only the depravity of your sin, but the greatness and the wonder of Jesus, who died and rose again on our behalf, friends, if you love him before and more than all this stuff and all these problems and about your job, even your own family, even your own life, friends, what does Jesus tell us? He makes this promise. Look at what he says in verse 25. He who loves his life, you've lost it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. The way to life is to love Christ more than anything. And then notice in verse 26, there's just two more promises that he gives. These are so good. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am there my servant will be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him look at this next promise eternal heaven with god is the destiny of his servants eternal heaven that's what god gives to his servants what he says he says if you serve me what you must follow me let me ask are you a servant of Christ? Would you identify yourself as a servant of Jesus? Are you th- oh, you're thinking about that. Good. Because if you're a servant of Jesus, what does Jesus say? You follow me. Which means that you follow his word. You follow his direction. He's the Lord of your life. If you're a servant of Jesus, if you follow him, let me give you the great promise. His promise is that you have eternal heaven with him. Not long from this event, in John 14, Jesus makes this statement, verse 3. He says, Jesus told his disciples, you know, if I go, I go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. He's prepared a place, and he's saying, if I go, I prepare a place for you so that you who serve me and you follow me, I'm the Lord of your life, you love me, you will be with me forever. Forever. Man, what a tremendous promise that is. And there's another promise found in this verse, in verse 26. Service is the way to honor. Did you see that? And if anyone serves me, that means that you're putting Jesus as your priority. You serve him with your time. You serve him with your resources, your finances, your education. You serve him in your job. You serve him in your family. You serve him in the church. You serve him in our community. Notice this, if you serve him, see that? If you serve me, the Father will honor him. Service is the way to honor. So what what exactly is this honor? This is the honor. The greatness of God Almighty will be shown in your life. Is there not a greater honor than that? God's character being displayed in you. We're all vessels. But if we're a vessel fit for honorable use... It means that we're dedicated to Jesus. We're not following the ways of the world. It's, our life is much more than what we're eating, drinking, wearing, and driving. Our life is about him. Guess what? The character of God is put on display. What an honor. But I'll tell you that most of the honor that we will receive will be in the honor of being in the presence of Christ himself before the Father. You know, friends, we're going to be there in just a short time. The tremendous honor that comes, it's coming And we're living for his glory. What a promise. What a savior. You know, Jesus is making these promises. But in just a short time, those who are calling out Hosanna are going to call out crucify him. And they'll scourge him. And they'll nail him to a cross. And it's going to be a brutal, ugly death. But far beyond the physical agony was when God takes his just wrath against sin. And he pours it out on Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, perfect without sin. He becomes sin on our behalf, and he pays for it all. And so that the world will know that there is a Savior, the Savior for the world, Jesus rises from the dead three days later. You see, we worship Jesus because of who he is and the work he does. You know, most kingdoms, they're going to do everything they can to protect their king, right? Isn't that how it works? For instance, if you play chess, you know that in chess, uh, when the king falls, right, the kingdom's over. So in chess, you're going to do everything you can to protect your king. If you don't know that, you are a sorry chess player, right? You do everything you can to protect the king. I'll give you another example about this, where kings will do everything they can to protect their king. During the Normandy invasion and all the preparation that went into that, um, June 6, 1944, what a time. All this planning that went into this massive invasion of France. And, of course, in the midst of all of it was the British bulldog, Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill was absolutely determined that he was going to be there He was going to be on the deck of a destroyer, and he wanted to see it happen with his own eyes, this massive attack that they had planned. Well, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the supreme commander, said, no, you are absolutely not. We we can't afford to lose the British prime minister of you being on the deck of a destroyer. But you know, Churchill, he had a mind of his own, and he's like, ah, ah. He'd sometimes pretend he couldn't hear people because he was going to do whatever he thought he would do. He was living on his own agenda And Eisenhower didn't know what to do because he could see he could not be dissuaded. And so what Eisenhower did is he appealed to a higher authority. He went to King George VI himself, told him of the predicament. And King George went to Churchill, his prime minister, and said, well, if you feel so strongly that you've got to be on the deck of that destroyer during this invasion, Operation Overlord, then if I'm the king of the people of England... I must be there too. And Churchill. He saw it and the implications of it. There was absolutely no way some freak accident and the king and the prime minister being taken out that he could do it. And Churchill stood down. He understood you'll do everything you can to protect your king. And all kingdoms function like that except one, Jesus' kingdom. King Jesus did the exact opposite. It's not about how we can protect the king. It was God's sovereign plan to send him into the teeth of those who hated him, to fulfill a sovereign plan in which he would be crucified. Even the crown of thorns that was just jammed into his head was a symbol of his royalty. See, God, he sent his king our king, to rescue us. We worship Jesus because of who he is and the work he has done. And friends, Jesus, he is our king. We worship Jesus because of who he is and the work he has done. Let's pray.